If you mention the word podcast over coffee, many immediately come up with the list of must-listens. But did you know that the largest category in the Apple podcast directory is religion and spirituality? Despite what is broadcasted in our media-driven culture and what's discussed in the public square, the irrelevance of religion for life and fulfilment, we are seeing a growing desire in people to find spiritual fulfilment beyond work and leisure. As millions privately subscribe to religion and spirituality podcasts. But in our age of podcasts and spirituality and the school of thoughts, our path to spiritual fulfilment can easily chop and change with the latest waves of ideas, authors, futurists and gurus. In the current ways of our culture, it seems like Jesus and his saving death is no longer enough for growth, maturity, and spiritual fulfillment. Do you feel like this this year? Do you feel like so far you've been tossed around with the circumstances of your life and perhaps you've been chopping and changing with what you think will help you grow and mature in your walk with God? And maybe you still feel like you're in the wash rather than making any significant progress. Or if you're like me, a podcast junkie or a book junkie, have you had that moment where you just hit paused and in a moment of self-reflection ask yourself, with all this content that I'm consuming, am I actually being formed by the Spirit of God or am I being formed by the Spirit of this age? Does my Christianity look more like Christ Or does my Christianity look more like my culture? Well, if that's you, then Paul's letter to the Colossians is a very timely book for God to speak truth into your life. Paul had never met the Christians in the church of Colossae. The church in Colossae was started by his co-worker, Epaphras, who was actually from Colossae. Epaphras had visited Paul and updated him on how well these new Christians in Colossae were doing. But he was also concerned about the cultural pressures in the city of Colossae, that those pressures might tempt these young and new Christians to turn away from Jesus. So Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians to address the cultural pressures that Epaphras had raised and to challenge them to a greater confidence in Jesus for their ongoing spiritual growth. So what was the cultural pressures that the Colossians had faced? Colossae was a diverse cosmopolitan city that was exposed to a wide variety of religions and philosophies and schools of thoughts. So it's not hard to see that in that kind of diverse cultural environment, there had emerged an unlikely mishmash of beliefs and practices. This is known as syncretism or salad bar spirituality, where you get your plate and you get your thong and you say, I like some of this and I like some of that, but I don't like that. I'll take a little bit of this and I'll take a little bit of that, a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that philosophy, a little bit of that pop psychology, a little bit of that morality, and I will create a designer spirituality that works for me. And that is exactly the same situation that we find ourselves in today. For the Colossians, the two influences that were being mixed into their belief and practices, which Paul actually addresses in the letter in chapters 2 verses 16 to 23, was Gnostic mysticism and Judaic legalism. We'll look at this 
in more detail when we get to that section of the letter, but as an introduction, Gnostic mysticism originated from the Roman culture, and central to Gnosticism is the belief that one can gain knowledge of God in the spiritual realm through mystical, inward, personal experiences. An interesting fact is that the early church's battle against Gnosticism had actually resulted in the church defining the canon of Scripture. That is, Gnosticism had really pushed the church to define which books were the authoritative word of God in the Bible. There was also pressure from the Jewish community for non-Jewish Christians to complete their commitment to Jesus as their Messiah by following all of the Jewish laws, many of which were man-made laws that were added to the Old Testament laws. It was a rule-based, legalistic spirituality enforced through guilt and shame. And so this designer spirituality that mixed in a bit of Gnostic mysticism and Judaic legalism was promoted probably by people within the Colossian Christian community who were bragging about their ability to find ultimate spiritual fullness via their own designer spirituality. But we have to ask, why were some of these Christians compelled to incorporate mysticism and legalism into their belief and Christian practices? Was it just a case of cultural assimilation? Did it all just organically mix together because of the proximity with different people and different cultures? Or was there another catalyst? One commentator makes a very insightful historical observation about a key feature of first century Roman culture that would inform us of the, their interest in mysticism at the time. And that feature was anxiety about the world and one's place in it. It was anxiety about their world and one's place in it. Walter Wilson, a commentator, says, in response to this unsettled state of affairs, mortals sought some understanding of and access to the supernatural powers that controlled their lives, often via intermediary or denomonic beings or through mystical experiences. This would involve discovering some sort of effectual means for appeasing, worshipping or manipulating these powers in order to obtain a degree of protection or in order to escape the corrupt terrestrial world either in this life or the next. It's actually the same today. When something in a person's life causes them to be anxious about their world and their place in it, it's not uncommon for people who are not religious or spiritual at all to all of a sudden turn to horoscopes, turn to spiritual mediums, or even come to church. You can also see how legalism was a way to deal with anxiety. Dogmatic rules and regulations can provide a sense of control and certainty. What was most likely going on was that there were some Christians who became false teachers and were appealing to spiritual beings, mystical experiences and rules as a way to find security in a very uncertain world. In their attempt to seek security and spiritual fullness, they were separating themselves from the only true source of security and spiritual fullness, the Lord Jesus Christ. Over the centuries, anxiety about the world and our place in it has not decreased. In fact, anxiety has become the defining mental issue of our decade. Many people seek out religion and spirituality for all sorts of reasons, but it's very probable that many become seekers because of the age-old human problem of being anxious about our world and our place 
in it. And it's also very probable that Christians in anxious environments are also inclined to seek security and fullness beyond the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Are you a restless and unsettled in your Christian walk at the moment? Maybe it's because you're anxious about the world and your place in it. Have you become a podcast junkie, feeling the need to get on top of the next big thing, that next big podcast? Maybe it's because you're anxious about the world and your place in it. God's timely word for us in the book of Colossians is this. The way for us to be non-anxious Christians, for us to be having a non-anxious presence in our homes, in our workplaces, in our church community, is to find our confidence in the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Security and spiritual fullness is all attainable in the gospel of Christ because he reigns supreme and is sufficient for salvation. We don't need to look anywhere else but to Jesus. When we become captivated by the supremacy and power of Christ over all things, we will be renewed with an unwavering confidence in Christ amidst the chaotic waves of our times and culture. I mentioned before that For us to fulfill our renewed vision for Chapel Hill, we would need to experience personal gospel renewal, a renewed confidence, devotion and passion for the spiritual power and the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the book of Colossians, I think, is the blessed place to start to stoke gospel renewal in our personal lives. And so Paul starts this letter by showing how the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms people with hope, knowledge, and power. Gospel hope, gospel knowledge, and gospel power. So firstly, Paul is thankful for the gospel hope-driven faith and love that is evident in the Colossian church. Paul gives thanks to God for the Colossians because they were exhibiting the three cardinal Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope. Personal faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Love for all of God's people. A love without favouritism. And a hope for the riches and rewards in heaven. Faith, love, hope are all the three key markers and evidence of saving faith. And Paul talks about faith, love, hope together in other places, in other letters to the churches. But what's different here is in Verse 5, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven. He talks about faith and love that comes from hope. Faith and love as the fruit of hope. Faith and love in the present that is derived from, shaped by the hope for the future. When Prince Charles was three, Elizabeth was ascended to Queen Elizabeth II. As queen, she immediately made Charles as the next heir to the throne. Charles' whole life was lived in anticipation of being crowned King Charles III. Charles' certain future as the next king has shaped everything in his life, from his education, his involvement in the military, his working life, his choice of marriage partner, to his taste in architecture, hobbies and sports. There is no doubt that Charles would have led a very different life had he had not been the Prince of Wales, the heir apparent. In the same way, the certain hope of being heirs of the eternal kingdom of God shapes the Christian life in the present. 
Because the hope of eternal life and the riches of the kingdom of God is a certainty. And that makes Christian faith in the present and an assured faith, a confident faith. It is a faith that gives comfort and instills confidence because eternal life is a gift to be received, not earned by our moral effort. All other faiths offers the possibility of eternal life based on your life performance, but only Christian faith offers the assurance of eternal life based on Jesus' perfect life. Only faith in Jesus Christ gives us this audacious confidence about the future. All other faith can only give you coyish, wishful thinking about the future. Now, you might find that a bit uncomfortable when you hear me say that. You might find that, hey, that's a bit too confident. That's a bit too sure of yourself, mate. And in our culture with our tall poppy syndrome, we recoil at confidence and confident speech. But the tall poppy syndrome shouldn't apply to Christians because we are not confident in ourselves, but confident in Jesus who achieves our salvation for us. So actually, it's the other faith that leads to religious arrogance that depends on oneself to be good and to earn salvation. Christianity, on the other hand, gives a humble confidence. We're humble that we're actually no good, but confident that Jesus is so good that he would die for us to bring us into eternity with God. And if that is your faith, then you can be audaciously confident. That is the shape and colour of Christian faith because of the hope we have, that certain hope we have in Christ. I think we're too coy. Our corporate confession is that we're not bold. We're not brave. We don't stand tall with our shoulders back in our faith. We're not audacious. Dare I say, audacious can sometimes feel like a dirty word in church. I think we've let the tall poppy syndrome shape us more than the hope-driven faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And you might push back and say, hey, Jesus' disciples, they were coy, mild, and weak. I would say, yes, that is the very picture of the early disciples of Jesus before the resurrection of Jesus. What were the disciples like After the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples were bold, brave, and audacious in proclaiming the gospel. I mean, they were leaders, missionaries, and martyrs. That is the shape and color of Christian faith because of the hope we have in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Humble, yet audaciously confident. The certain resurrection hope in Christ also shapes how Christians love. Because eternal life is an assured certainty for the Christian, it enables the Christian to love others unselfishly, loving others in a way not to get to God. And if you're a person here today that doesn't have a faith, who is not religious, I'll tell you what I find most difficult about religious people. You might have your own difficulties with religious people. I'll tell you what I find most difficult about religious people. When a religious person comes to love, serve and care for me, I find it really difficult when I come to realise that their inner motive to love and serve and care for me is a way for a religious person to accumulate good works in order to gain God's approval and acceptance into heaven. 
I find that really difficult with religious people because do I feel like I'm loved? No, I feel used. I feel like I'm just a thing on that religious person's moral resume. But for the Christian, this is not what goes on because God's approval, acceptance and eternal love are already given by the grace of Jesus Christ. A Christian doesn't need to love others to selfishly earn God's love, but by the grace of Jesus Christ, a Christian is free to love others unselfishly. With a pure motive and genuine love in the security of God's everlasting love. That is the shape and colour of hope driven love and if you're new to chapel hill know that the love that you feel from us is pure and a genuine love you are not a thing or a project for anyone's moral resume we love you completely wholeheartedly and unselfishly because we are secure in god's everlasting and unchanging love for us you are not our way to get to heaven jesus is And so we can love you completely, wholeheartedly, and unselfishly. This kind of faith, love, and hope all comes from, as Paul says in verse 5, from the true message of the gospel. Paul is thankful for the Colossians because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, the Son of God who comes to reconcile us to God by paying for our sins in his death and raising us to new life in his resurrection. This saving message was heard by the Colossians and he had the power to transform them to have audacious faith, unselfish love and certain hope in Jesus Christ. That is the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ for which Paul is deeply thankful to God for. The young Colossian believers have started well in their Christian faith. And obviously Paul desires them to see them continue to grow. So he moves from being thankful to being prayerful for their gospel knowledge to grow through wisdom and understanding. Read with me verse 9. For this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all with the wisdom and the understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. This is not a once-off prayer, but something that Paul is committed to praying continually. The need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is constant in order to continue to live a life pleasing to God, bearing in good works. What Paul has in mind is not specific guidance for one's life. Yes, it's vital and right to lean on God for his direction in big life decisions. Yet Paul's weighty prayer here is bigger than specific life guidance. Paul is praying for the knowledge of God's will in Christ and having a deeper understanding and wisdom on how to be more like Christ. Because later in the letter, Paul says in chapter 2, that my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom all hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All knowledge of God is revealed in and through Jesus Christ. 
Paul is not praying for new knowledge. Paul is praying for a more fuller knowledge of Jesus Christ and for the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and understanding on what to do with it. Having the wisdom and understanding on how to apply the knowledge of Christ in our time and place to be pleasing to God, to do good works and to be more like Christ in our time and place. Some have seen in the word knowledge epinosis as a hint that Paul's picking up the language of the Gnostic opponents and refuting the Gnostic belief that divine knowledge is accessed and confined to private religious experience or to the spiritual elites. Instead, Paul's talking about the knowledge of God revealed in Jesus Christ, which is open to all of God's people through the scriptures. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed to all through the scriptures and the Holy Spirit dwells in all of God's people. So how do we do this? Well, it's back to basics. It's reading your Bible. If you want to know God's will, you need to read God's word. To be in the spirit is to be in the scriptures. Several years ago, Willow Creek Church in America which is one of the largest churches in North America, bravely admitted after a lengthy spiritual survey that their pragmatic, practical, and church growth-orientated ministry strategies of forming followers of Christ wasn't working the way they thought it would. And so after an extensive spiritual survey, they compiled a list of the most formative disciplines in the lives of believers that they had identified as the most mature and most Christ-like. Do you know what they discovered was the number one catalyst for spiritual growth? This is what they said. The common models of activating spiritual growth, such as getting people involved in church activities like attending worship, participating in small groups, serving the needy, or sharpening their beliefs in salvation by grace, the authority of the Bible, the person of Christ, were helpful, but not not the most effective vehicles for producing evidence of spiritual growth. The most powerful catalyst for moving people through stages of spiritual growth, the survey revealed, was reading and reflecting on Scripture. It's reading and reflecting on the Bible. It's getting back to basics. I know it's a common complaint for us to say that we feel distant from God, that we can not hear his voice or know his will. But so long as we have the Bible, this is simply not true. In the scriptures, God's spirit has breathed out his very word. It is enough to provide us everything we need for eternal life, and yet we complain for more. Look, I do believe the spirit can speak to Christians in other ways, but the primary most common and authoritative way God speaks to us is in the Bible. The Bible is accessible to everyone. So we will never lack his voice, never lack his will for our life. So how silly are we to have the Bible now literally in our pockets and turn to God and say, yeah, but what else you got? You're like, I get it. I know I need to read the Bible, but it's hard. And I can understand. I too have days where I find it hard to open up my own Bible. And the best pastoral encouragement that I've found to stoke my desire for God's word 
has been through an author, Jared Wilson, who wrote the book Imperfect Disciple. He writes in Psalm, about Psalm 119, verse 103. David writes, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I know that many times Bible study can taste like stale rice crackers. This is not because the Bible is not delicious, but because our palate isn't developed enough to discover how delicious it is. But once we acquire the taste, we can't get enough of it. It creates more demand for what it supplies. And that was the same experience I had with coffee. I only got into coffee at a later age. I didn't really like coffee at first because I found coffee to be really bitter. But once I got into it, my palate changed. I developed a taste for it. I've come to appreciate the sweetness of coffee now. Jared Wilson says, the more we dwell in scripture, developing a greater taste and feel for it, the less sweet and less comforting the things of the world will taste and feel. He then goes on to quote British poet George Herbert, who wrote a beautiful poem about the Bible. And in the poem, he describes the Bible as infinite sweetness. And Herbert went on to say that the Bible is heaven laid flat. I love that. I love how he treats and responds to the Bible. The Bible is heaven laid flat. When we open up the Bible, it's like opening up a window into the divine world of celestial delights. The real problem is our spiritual palate is not yet fully accustomed to heaven's store. Our hearts are still harder than they ought to be. But all we have to do is just make a start to come back to the scriptures. And over time, it will become sweeter and sweeter when we have a renewed perspective that in this worn and sorry-looking book is the mystery of the universe, the message that every human being has been searching for, the answer to all human desires and longings, a word from out of this world, the very voice of God. The Bible is heaven laid flat. Just as the Holy Spirit fills us with wisdom and understanding of the knowledge of God's will in Christ, so he will also give us the power to persevere to the end. So Paul also prays for the Colossians that they will be strengthened with gospel power to endure and be patient. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that he may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Growing in the knowledge of God to grow in our holiness and do good works is going to be an uphill battle as we face our daily trials and perhaps oppositions to our faith. But the strength for this uphill battle comes from the power of God himself. The very power that raises Jesus to life is the same power that strengthens us to endure all kinds of trials, challenges, and oppositions. Just as the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a different kind of faith, love, and hope compared to worldly faith, love, and hope, And just as the gospel knowledge gives us a different kind of wisdom and understanding compared to worldly wisdom and understanding, the 
power from the gospel of Jesus Christ is also different to all other kinds of power. The shape and colour of gospel-driven power is not this white-knuckle, jaw-clenching endurance and strength like Ellis and I trying to bench press. Gospel-empowered endurance is remarkably different. Look at verse 12. The shape and colour of gospel power is giving joyful thanks to the Father. Gospel-driven endurance and patience is filled with joy. How remarkable is that? It's almost unbelievable. God's power amongst his people is shown by the real experience of joy under pressure. The Holy Spirit's empowerment enables us to have endurance and patience and have that accompanied by joy. Only gospel-driven power enables us to praise in the middle of problems, hope in the middle of hurt, joy in the middle of grief. How can we tell if a church is filled with God's power? A gospel-powered filled church is a church filled with people with patience and praise in the middle of problems. Not a church without personal problems, but with problems, with patience and praise. How is this possible? I mean, how does this work? How can we face hardship with joyful gratitude towards God? Paul is able to envisage the Colossians enduring with joy because he is convinced that something cosmic has already happened to the Colossians. There has been a cosmic transformation and transportation in their lives so drastic as it's the difference between night and day. Verse 12, For God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. God has qualified us to become his holy people, to become citizens of his kingdom of light, a kingdom of goodness, purity and holiness, with a good and pure and holy God as our king, not by our qualifications. God has qualified us, not by our moral resume, but God has qualified us. He is the one that has made us righteous before God. How? Verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can come and be transported and transformed into the kingdom of light from the dominion of darkness by Jesus paying the ransom price for that rescue by dying to our sins. By Jesus' death for us, we are rescued and redeemed. We are transported and transformed from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. I've picked up a new TV series recently. It's the Jack Ryan series. Uh, Jack Ryan is a CIA agent based on the Tom Clancy novels. And the storyline is about a wife of a terrorist who's fleeing Syria with her kids. It's actually really confronting as it tries to depict the horrible journey of what it would be like to be a vulnerable refugee being smuggled out of a terrorised nation in order to seek safety and asylum in a different country. And it's particularly confronting as it's a story about a mum and her two daughters. And in order to find the mother and girls along the smuggling trial, 
Jack has to resort to paying off a sex trafficker who knows the people who are running the smuggling ring. And Jack really hates having to work with this guy. In the car as they chase down the mother and girls, Jack cold shoulders the guy and treats him with absolute contempt. And the sex trafficker turns to Jack and says, you don't like me. You think you're the good guy and I'm the bad guy. Maybe you're right. But maybe if I was born in a nice city in America, I could be the good guy too. Geography is destiny, my friend. Geography is destiny, my friend. That is what Paul is kind of saying to the Colossians. He's saying to the Colossians, you were once living in the dominion of darkness where the rule and power structures were characterized by chaos, evil, and judgment. Your destiny was sin and death. But Jesus, by his sacrificial rescue, he has saved you and taken you out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light, where God's rule is characterized by peace, love, and holiness. Your destiny now is holiness, eternal life, and everlasting peace. See, God through Jesus has done something no CIA agent could ever do, which is to save you from the cosmic spiritual realm of darkness and evil into the kingdom of light and holiness. Jesus has saved you from the oppression of evil and Satan to become citizens of God's kingdom. Geography is destiny. Jesus, rescue us from the slums of darkness to the kingdom of light, which means we have a new citizenship, a new identity, a new community, a new destiny. We can imagine that life for a refugee in Australia is hard. They have to adapt to a new culture. They have to learn a new language. Their previous qualifications are no longer recognised. It's really hard for them to even find a low-level paying job. It's hard to make new friends. On top of all of that, the day-to-day pressures of having to start and raise a family in a foreign country. But I can imagine that even with all of those hardships and trials, refugees are perhaps deeply and profoundly joyful and grateful for their new life. Because no matter how hard and difficult life is in Australia, it's probably in no way as bad as life back in a war-torn, corrupt, terror-stricken, darkened nation. Christians are citizens of heaven. We too have a deeply and profound joy and gratitude for our new life in Christ. We can come to church with our ongoing problems and challenges and still lift up our heads high and praise God because no matter how hard or difficult our current circumstances are at the moment, We can say, at least I'm not going through these challenges in the slums of darkness. At least I am free from the chaos, evil, and judgment in the realm of darkness. As citizens of the kingdom of God, I can endure my challenges with God by my side as my ruler and king with his holy people encouraging and loving me with a destiny of everlasting light and love. My geography is Christ and my destiny is his kingdom. Therefore, I can be joyful in my endurance. My confidence in life is in Christ because in Jesus Christ, I have a gospel hope 
to love faithfully. I have gospel knowledge to live wisely. I have gospel power to endure joyfully. In Christ, I have all I need to live a new and full life, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are joyfully grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power to give us a hope that will give us an audacious faith and an unselfish love. For it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ we have the knowledge of God's will so that we could have all wisdom and understanding to live in our time and place to be a pleasing sacrifice to you. And it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ we have the power to endure with patience and praise for you and you alone has saved us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. May we praise you forever as we endure with your power. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen.